Welcome to Industry Insights, a podcast from the European Film Market in cooperation with Goethe Institute. My name is Johanna Koljonen. I'm a media analyst and experience designer based in Sweden, and I'll be your host today. In fact, I will also be one of your expert guests as we flit back through time to Tuesday's Nostradamus Report session at the EFM and my conversation there with producer John Giwaamo. The annual Nostradamus Report looks into the near future of the screen industries with a focus on film and TV. It's commissioned by the Göteborg Film Festival. This year's report was the eighth, and over the years it's built up quite an international following, helped by our international collaborations, such as the one with the EFM. Every year, the Nostradamus Report relies on interviews with industry changemakers, visionaries and experts working in strategic positions. This year, I set the interviewees the task to look beyond the pandemic to the media landscape five years ahead. In just a few moments, you'll hear more about what the future might be like from a producer's perspective. And the meat of this episode will be my conversation with Welsh producer John Giwaamu, who I feel is already way ahead of the curve. Here is my presentation, followed by our conversation. All right, I'm being told this session is live. This is always slightly disconcerting, even now a year into this madness. My name is Johanna Kolyanen, and uh, I'm here today to talk to you uh, about the eighth annual Nostradamus report. Nostradamus is a project by the Nordic film market that looks to the near future of the screen industries. And as I said, this is our eighth annual report. I'm incredibly pleased to be able to return to Berlin, even in this strange manner. Um, And I want to thank first uh, at the beginning, of course, all the team members in Berlin who made this possible. Thank you very much. In this session, I will give you the brief highlights version of the report. Uh, I will tell you where to find it, and I will have a conversation with Welsh producer, producer John Giwamo that I'm very excited about. But first, a thank you. The Nostradamus Project is a collaboration with Filmivest, uh, who are a very significant regional fund here in Sweden, and they're also our main partner. And all of our other supporters are public too. And uh, that actually gives me, us, this project, uh, some liberty uh, of perspective that over the years I've, I've started to appreciate more and more. I do read, obviously, and enjoy and fully rely on industry analysis from all the other sources that are also available uh, to us. But a lot of those are produced in contexts that that need to make a profit or they need to help somebody make a profit. Um, and we don't need to do that because we're publicly funded and we don't help um, or we don't exist uh, in that environment exclusively. And that allows us to think about this industry more holistically and to weigh in artistic and and societal perspective as well when we consider processes of change. Every year, the report is based around 10 or so in-depth interviews with experts who are working in strategic positions. The magic trick, of, of course, is we don't predict the future. We just describe what the future makers are doing today. This year's experts between them uh, cover traditional and virtual production, distributing and targeting, exhibition, brand financing, as well as more traditional financing, both public and private, TV, streaming, I would argue those are now increasingly the same, and curation. And indeed, I got to speak to a few esteemed analyst colleagues as well. 
And this is where we have to begin, of course, uh, this year. Cinemas, this is a real place. That's a trite observation. Uh, Cinemas are located in the real world. Obviously, they're mostly closed uh, now, so we are all very aware. But I, I think the place where we started and where every conversation this year had to start was the fact that this industry also is located in the real world. Ecosystems, financial systems, uh, global health, political systems, whether it's about the state of democracy or, or uh, vaccination speeds or, or racial justice riots, global supply or demonstrations, obviously, uh, global supply chains, uh, extreme weather events like forest fires and floods messing up shooting schedules. Whatever we do, we are part of the real world. We talk about dreams, we, we think about art, we talk about industry, and that is an abstract term. But what we do and make and trade in, um, when we do that, when we do and make and trade in dreams, so to speak, that still uh, involves a lot of verbs that are happening in the real world. We're not just reflecting it, but we're also acting in it. I should mention here that 2020 was a year of constant climate emergency that barely broke the news for the obvious reason of the humanitarian crisis that overshadowed everything. But, but I do think that a big change has happened. And that's actually the first chapter of the report. We as an industry have realized our situatedness in this uh, real world environment. This crisis, the most urgent phase of it will probably, and its most immediate effects will continue for another two to three years. That's probably inevitable. But when we spoke to the interviewees and asked them to talk, to look ahead, look to that five-year horizon after, they were already thinking about the next crisis. What's the next pandemic going to be? What's the next climate crisis going to be? Migration patterns and so on. When we all go back to work, um, to some new normal, we're going to have to do it in a more resilient way because we do live in an unstable age and we're going to have to be part of the solution and not the problem. That said, obviously, theatres are top of everybody's mind. And it's probably true that five years from now, we will have fewer cinemas operating on the current models. But those cinemas, on the other hand, are likely to do very well. Many of them will be focused on blockbusters scheduled in, in ages in advance and delivering a very sort of predictable, reliable type of evening out. Um, they may have a short exclusive window of two to three weeks. There will be a, a premium digital window, probably in parallel or slightly before or, or just after. Um, what will definitely have disappeared five years from now is that dead window when the content isn't legally available anywhere. Uh, and of course, the consequence of this is that you will only have to market each, each title once. And that already is a massive win-win for, for most of the titles. There will probably also be a very profitable bourgeois upmarket cinema culture aimed at people, you know, like most of us who can afford to splurge on a cultural night out. And both in those kinds of in both kinds of cinemas, but especially probably the latter, there will definitely be, be place for art house uh, content and international titles too. Even so, uh, we have to accept that the theatrical market for independent film is shrinking. I do believe that cinema real estate will become available in the wake of pandemic closures and that that will empower um, if we don't let that infrastructure disappear and that this is an urgent um, sort of danger. But if we're able to save it, then I think it will lead to an enormous renaissance in cinema going culture and new types of, of, script, of experimental exhibition, essentially. Uh, art house and nation catalog films can absolutely have a space in those environments. Of course, they will also do other kinds of things, festivals, uh, uh, curated pop-ups, hybrid events, and, and many other cultural forms will take place there as well. 
I think that can revitalize film culture in the public sphere, but we need to understand that that cannot sustain uh, an exhibition market for the same volumes of independent cinema that we've seen in the past. And a real danger here is giving up on the under 25s uh, just because a lot of our content isn't working well in theaters for them right now. That very rapidly becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, if we don't provide, especially in art house exhibition, relevant films in appealing environments at an affordable price point, then we're going to lose this uh, generation and they will move on to other things. So we are now at a very exciting and rare, possibly unique, or at least maybe it's been possibly a hundred years since we've seen this happen the last time. We're at a moment in our industry where everything about financing and distribution and audience behavior is changing at the same time. There are so many variables that we obviously can't predict exact outcomes that would be impossible, but this isn't some kind of natural phenomenon like attacking us. These are man-made changes. And right now, Everyone in the value change, from the individual producer, the tiniest exhibitor, all the way up to multinational companies, everyone can participate in shaping these outcomes. Now, the big players, the global streamers, the Hollywood majors, they've made it pretty clear what they would like the outcomes to be and where they're already moving. You can read all about that in the report. Um, and of course, if we treat that as the final word, yes, then they will get everything they want and, and we will get nothing at all. But we have to understand that the whole value chain has agency in this process. Agency means what you're able to do, right? We have agency through innovation. You can put together a project today that finds a novel way to connect audience attention uh, with the content and, and to monetize that along the way. If your project works, that can widen the landscape of possibility for everybody. We have agency through collaboration. We can team up in negotiations, in co-production, obviously, in networks of smaller players or broadcasters for greater commissioning power or greater acquisition power. We can collaborate around IP within the audiovisual sector, sector more broadly and so on. And we also have agency because of the very strong market as soon as you know production opens everywhere uh, and because of the specificity of our voices so for instance then in the next couple of years there are quite a lot of reasons yes why the streamers will will prefer fully financed projects in exchange for, for global rights but at the same time, there is also a great need for content now that is not exclusive or that will only be exclusive for a period of time or which doesn't even need to be in that premiere window. So if you're concerned today about becoming a producer for hire or, or you're not being offered what you think would be fair for a specific project, maybe don't comply. Maybe go look for those other kinds of offers. I would argue that even the global streamers have very quietly, obviously, but they have been surprisingly flexible. They have made a lot of, well, not, not enormous amounts, but they have made the kinds of deals that we don't expect them to make, carving out the local territory, carving out the cinema window, or you know, if you feel that you know your target audience very well, perhaps you should try and, and retain transactional VOD rights. Uh, arguably, no, you can no longer or that would no longer be seen as, as competing directly with SVOD, certainly not at scale. So that could work for, for a very specifically targeted project that could work surprisingly well for you financially. Really, what I'm trying to say is that the globals know what they want, but we don't seem to know what we want, except that we want to go back to how things were before. And I can tell you one prediction with absolute certainty, that is not going to happen. That's literally the only thing that you are not going to have. But if you could have anything else, any other value chain, 
how would it work? And who do you need to be standing next to to make that come true? That could be very sought after talent, could be your national unions, it could be industry organizations on a national or European level, probably actually all of those. Sometimes the partner you need is the right sales agent or distributor. But these are struggling, I think, to grasp this, this change uh, and their current business models aren't necessarily working very well in the landscape. So I would say at least of, as of now, you as a producer need to be much more active in shaping the full value change of, of every specific project that you have. And ultimately, talent, including your own talent, is an incredibly sought after commodity. Creativity and skill have a real value in the marketplace right now. Um, which is a little bit ironic because a lot of our, our governments aren't necessarily supporting culture in the way that they would if they understood how valuable it actually is also financially. Um, but if you can survive this pandemic, there will be plenty of work to go around and, and small stakeholders can work together to scale up our resources, our competence and our reach. Uh, I think the most difficult shift to deal with is internal. Uh, the relative importance of theatrical is diminishing, and that means that the financial and arguably the artistic heart of the industry is shifting away from, from feature-length theatrical, which used to be the most holy you know, in our sector. Um, we can think at this point of, of streaming and TV as the same thing. They're certainly part of the industry, and of course, they're commissioning quite a lot of feature-length originals as well. That's a trend tendency that, at least for the next three years, is growing um, aggressively. And I think the other screens, of course, are also just as important. I'll just mention one example. Uh, YouTube's ad revenue grew 77, I think, percent over the last two years, over 70 percent in two years. Some of that money, of course, is going to content creators, and that means especially at a time when production prof professional production tools are also very easily available, having a direct pipeline from creative to audience is now possible. Uh, it's not just a fun project, you know, for content of, of questionable quality. This is a completely viable lifestyle uh, and actually also a functioning business model. Now, if you find that thinking about that is incredibly threatening, I think you have to stop and just consider why does that upset you so much? Why does this upset us so much as an industry? And I think we have to ask ourselves that on artistic grounds specifically, uh, because artistic quality is what is often referred to in this context as some sort of defense, why we are very important and every other kind of video is not as important. So I would like you to ask yourself, have we perfected cinema? Have we figured out what the ultimate film should be? What is the optimal film's qualities? And if you can tell me those, you know, then, then we're done. Then we can go for a kind of museal path, almost like opera, you know, which we can keep alive, but where, um, but, but which is as an, as an um, art form backwards looking. But if you believe that film art can still develop and, and reach new artistic heights, then we have to consider whether it makes any sense to assume that the only place where revolutionary work can be uh, produced or, or the only environment where next level storytellers could mature would be inside our traditional industry. And also practically, it's becoming increasingly difficult to draw the line if an author makes a three hour, 40 minute art house film that, you know, competes in, in, in Berlin. And then the, their next project from the same person is a three-hour, 40-minute art house miniseries, uh, for instance, that, that they've used directly on television. Who are we to say that the size of the first screen determines ultimately the historical value or the artistic value uh, of that project? Yes. 
So I only have a few minutes left, so I will mention two more things. And I would like to say something here about virtual production, which is an umbrella term for elements of filmmaking which use manipulation of 3D modeling in game engine tools these days. Um, and often these days also, especially since the last year when that technology has had a big breakthrough, um, the uh, visual effects uh, used on LED screens on sets and captured live in camera. Now. I think my most important thing that I'm saying here is if you don't understand any of the words I'm saying now, do not panic. I have written the exact chapter, a very short text in the re report that will bring you on board with what's happening in this field, I think, with even if you don't have any previous knowledge. What you do need to know is that five years from now, these technologies and, and this type of production pipeline will be completely normalized across the industry. And yes, uh, even if you haven't touched it until today, you will probably be using it in some way uh, five years from now, or in fact, also possibly quite a lot. It uh, enables remote work, of course. It also changes the production pipeline. So a lot of the things that were previously imposed, like VFX, are moving up to towards pre-production. And ultimately, this will save us all a lot of money and time, give you a lot more creative control and enable relatively small markets and individuals to, to make VFX heavy work and, and big animation in a way that wasn't possible in, in most of Europe for you know, just five or 10 years ago. And an interesting detail here is that, that this means that media will converge. Um, I hope we can return to that in my conversation with John after. And finally, uh, I would like to say that, that all of these changes, uh, politically and culturally on a global level, uh, the, the, way me, the, content, the way the content is traveling now, um, and uh, yeah, a bunch of these, you can read more about it in the report, is creating a historically uh, unique moment of opportunity for European content. Um, however, it's a little bit challenged by the fact that we, we are on a policy level looking at film and TV and online as completely separate and, and, and unrelated industries. If you have cultural policy goals in your country for film, goals like representation or, or protecting local film um, um, uh, artistic traditions, you can't fulfill them if those goals are not also coherent with your strategies for um, public service broadcasting, for the broadcasting ecosystem in your language as a whole, um, and for the broader audiovisual sector uh, as part of the creative economy. And when we're starting to think about those in those terms, now that we're talking about such big numbers that this makes sense, this becomes legible to the machines of state, right? So it's possible for us to, to defend our cultural policy goals by thinking about our place in the creative industry and more aggressively. And to be able to do that, we need urgently to liaise ourselves with colleagues in audiovisual media. We got to be real policymakers and bureaucrats are not experts in our field. It's very complex. Um, and that means that we're going to have to lobby again for the outcomes that we want. Um, and that's hard. Uh, one thing that I have been struggling with for years is staying abreast of the AVMS update. So again, there I put a little chapter into the report that you can read, uh, written by Petri Kempin, and where we talk about that. Um, only when I finished the report and had read all of it, I realized that every chapter literally of it uh, are, is repeating the same theme. And that ultimately led to its title, which is Transforming Storytelling Together. The world affects us and we affect the world. We have to take responsibility for that together. We will innovate financing and distribution. 
Uh, we will do that together. We will explore and develop new storytelling tools and formats. We will do that uh, together. Virtual production pipelines will allow us to work together also remotely and to co-produce even when travel is difficult. And within the individual project, it uh, also empowers uh, collective collaboration between departments. And only by cooperating across silos within our countries, between them and on the European level, can we ensure that this historic opportunity for us as filmmakers, artistic opportunity and financial opportunity um, will develop and, and produce the kinds of results and the kind of language of cinema and the kind of sustainable film industry that we are hoping for. And yeah. That I put the gif in to remind me. Uh, also, again, if we have to listen to the under 25s, because they're making the future, that will be you know, the norm pretty soon. I'll stop here. The Nostradamus report is free to download at the Jotobody Film Festival webpage. We'll also make sure to put the link next to the recording if you're looking at this later. And I will now stop sharing my presentation and invite my guest to join me on the stage. Hello, I'm here in voice if you can't see me. I can see you. Hello, here, John. It's wonderful to see you. All right. Thank you for, for your patience with my long talky talk. Um, yes, as I said, you're, you're a wealth producer. You're with Goodgate Media. Uh, you are a producer of, of film, uh, TV and other things. Uh, uh, why don't you tell us what you did in Berlin last year? And why don't you tell us what's, what's on your slate there going forward? Um. So yeah, I've, I've had the good fortune. Of, Berlin's a festival I absolutely love. First of all, I'm really honoured to be here. This was one of the first festivals that myself and business partner at Red and Black, which is my previous film company, uh, used to come out to with great enjoyment and glee. And I am missing my German friends and general European marketplace at the moment very much. Um, but um, I, I became a film producer back in 2005, really. Um, uh, and we did a film called Little White Lies, which got a six BAFTA Camry nominations and it got us a Biffa nomination. And it was a kind of art housey leaning film. Uh, and because of, I suppose, the good and bad lessons I learned in that, we didn't get to make another film for like five and a half years. And that was a scary place to be, um, in truth. Um, and then we made The Machine uh, and The Machine played all over the world and did incredibly well for us, thank goodness, because that's what enabled me to continue being a film producer. Um, so so the, those were kind of the, the, the key things really that, that started me off. I started off in film school then. That was, that was my first step. So... Um, uh, do, <laughs> so, I mean, what's... Um, what, what, can you talk a little bit about some projects that you have going right now? Yeah, sure. I, you know, I've become very agnostic as a film producer. I suppose it started off just really like anything does for a producer, really, which is seeing an opportunity and thinking that you can make that happen. Um, so when I was in a room with other producers, I, I kind of thought I was seeing things that other people weren't. And that was back in the kind of days when I was just doing linear scripted film. And since then, I've just kind of become more and more agnostic. And um, that's resulted in me now being in a place where we've just delivered a film called Count Me In, um, which is a drumming documentary um, directed by a good friend, Mark Lowe, who um, with the Chili Peppers and the Foo Fighters and Queen's drummer and Pink Floyd and some, you know, some massive bands um, in it. Um, I've currently got on release five dates, which is an interactive film, which is what we'll come on to talk to, which 
we scripted, shot, and bust, and directly distributed with partner Wells Interactive during the pandemic, round one last year. Um, and we've also got the Complex on release, and these are all on PlayStation, Xbox, Nintendo, um, Steam. Um, uh, and yeah, the pipeline to distribution has been a kind of key thing in how this, how good gate as a company has now been built and has a future. Um, because I think as producers, sometimes we, we don't think about distribution enough, but we can, we can kind of come onto that. Um, what I'm hearing you say almost is that because all of these projects sound like you already had an idea of how the distribution would work. And that's one of the things, like from the very conception of the project, it's possible for you to initiate the project because you have an idea who the audience is and how to connect it. That, that's why I've tried to do more and more. The machine was the first step in that. And it was, it was really, you know, I don't mean to play a violin, but it was really hard work. <laughs> As we, we made the film, financed my first million pound feature film, which doesn't sound like a lot now, but at the time that was the most money I'd raised by a factor of 10 for something. So it was a huge step. And then I realized the marketplace, we were in a downturn, even then back in 2012, 13, we were in a massive downturn in the marketplace. DVD was dis disappearing through the floor. You know, we were still, Germany kind of still had a robust DVD market at that time, just about, but everyone else was like falling off the edge of a cliff. Um, and I realized that if we took the MG we were offered for a film like The Machine, which was a good film, which had, you know, premiered in in Tribeca, won a Sabifa, you know, got nominated the BAFTA Awards locally, you know, here in Wales and um, loads of things that I'm proud of. And I realized I was going to take a really crappy MG from a distributor for it. And I, I just thought, I can't do that. I just, I just can't do it. Um, so assembled a team around myself with the help of Film Cymru, which I'm now on the board of, which is the local funding body in Wales. Um, and, um, you know, and, and a group of people who were around me and, and put a distribution team around me and saw the opportunity in the distribution companies that were dissolving and sales companies which were dissolving and crumbling around me. But of course, they were then spitting out talent of people who were fulfilling roles of distribution within those companies, which we then absorbed into our own distribution campaign. So we ended up hiring a team of, I know, raised some money and we, we hired a team of, well, I hired a team of about eight or 10 people and we went out with it ourselves in the UK and um, <laughs> it was a crazy ride. We ended up... Um, I, my business partner, Crad, texted me like a couple of days after release and was like, we're, we're beating, um, we're beating gravity on like <laughs> Alfonso Crumbs on, um, on iTunes. Like, you know, I thought, I thought he was joking, obviously. Um, and we were, and the only thing that took us, took, took kept us off the top spot on iTunes, um, was the Hunger Games. We couldn't knock it off and it was number two. And we, it was when iTunes was that whole thing of, you know, buying things digitally was still kind of a, DVD was still the conventional wisdom of how you consume home entertainment in, you know, the premium window kind of thing. And now it was getting taken over by digital and, you know, we, we, you know, absolutely smashed it. It, it was, it was an incredible, right. And we won a screen award for the campaign and, you know, did it, but I'd literally never done it before. We, I just, I surrounded myself with good people and which is what I try and do and, you know, and managed a good campaign, but that was my first foray into distribution. And 
Um, it sounds it, it is about about understanding the target audience, and in this case, also that that had an audience that was already you know potentially users of iTunes, for instance. Um, and actually, also it strikes me that the fact that Hunger Games was doing well there uh, means I have to ask you about the, that younger demographic. Uh, we are. Uh, there is this idea in the industry that if we are struggling as we are, uh, especially in Europe, especially in non-English, to attract younger audiences to some of our content, um, especially to sort of quality filmmaking, that that they're they're a lost cause. We can't attract them. They're just not interested in art house, indie festival content and so on. What's your view on this? What are we doing wrong? Do you think they're a lost cause if we start there? I really hope not. You know the films that I like. You know, I've, I've, I've. Last year, you know, I had a movie that I'd exec on um, with Javier Bardem in it, The Rose Not Taken, and and a couple of years previous to that, we won the Berlin Al with you know that the Sally Potter movie again and the Party, and those films are films that you know mean something to me, and and I grew up on that work. Literally, that that is you know a deep love of mine is content that makes you feel and attracts the best talent and the magic you can see on set when you're on set with talent like that is, you know, there's literally nothing like it. You feel it, you know, very, very rarely. And so you can never deconvince and convince me of the value of it, certainly, but the new generation coming through, the truth is they are, as agnostic as me, but much more so in terms of, you know, the, what they will consume and how they will consume it. So we, you know, it, it concerns me that for, for a start, I couldn't run a business as a linear film business by itself. Linear scripted film in what I do, which is the independently financed model, that doesn't work for me as a business. If I worked for, you know, if I was provided with a studio overhead deal, um, then that's really the only way I could see me being having the quantum and the, yeah, the agility that I would need as a producer. Um, but, you know, I, I've kind of, I suppose, now produced my own mini studio with Goodgate, which is a new company. And we are becoming, you know, a development, financing, production and distribution entity that is completely, you know, up and down um, the value chain all the way through it. and. That is kind of where I've got to. To answer your question, though, it's a really tricky one. My heart, you know, my heart deeply wants to say no. I think it'll be fine, <laughs> but I don't. I'm not sure it will. Um, yeah. I think we. I think we can lose them, and, and I think I, we've got I to think, be really I smart think, of how. Can, I think we can lose them as well, actually. Yeah, but I'm also. Um, but I'm always an optimist also. So I'm thinking, and, and I mean, there are some clues in the report. Some of the experts I spoke to were speaking about, for instance, looking at like art house TikTok or or how even in the US a distributor like A24 has like this uh, dedicated fan base of, on TikTok, tons of content that are like, you know, in practice under 25s who are fans of films that are, you know, often genre, but, but also of an enormously high quality, who are then um, using that to as, a, as an entryway to explore film history and other uh, high quality cinema and, and so on. And I'm thinking, I can't stop thinking about, because I was in high school when Tarantino happened. And that's probably why we're like, why I'm here today. And I think that's true for a lot of people. And I wasn't you know, old enough to understand every movie that came out in the 90s, but they were really relevant really relevant to me they felt so fresh and surely surely we can do that and maybe that's where we fail or maybe but there's just 
there's so many people kind of doing what we're doing. It's like music and film. I'm sure you all know this, but music and film is worth 40% of the gaming market. Music and film combined, like together, is, you know, it's, it, it's, we're becoming a minority and we're going to become, a, a, you know, the, the problem is with film is that we're not paying pictures. We're not singing tunes with a guitar. We've got to ask people for millions of pounds and get it back with a profit. And uh, unless we're doing that, so we've got a responsibility to get out to an audience. We have to get out to an audience because ours is an expensive medium. This isn't a cheap medium we're in. You know, the cheap mediums though are doing really interesting things. You know, just last week in the last week, the, I don't know if you've seen the deep Tom Cruise thing that came out on TikTok, but you know, this is like AI that looks like Tom Cruise, sounds like Tom Cruise, and they're setting up, I think, I don't know this because I don't know them. I can only go on what I've seen. But what I find fascinating is the things that, exactly what you talked about there with Pulp Fiction. Did you see the bit where you know the timeline's messed up and you're getting parallel things going on and it was so clever and the ending was actually the beginning and actually killed the character, but he was still alive. And all of that discussion point, you know, narrative excitement, which you feel, of course, start with Reservoir Dogs. Now... Or Hitchcock, for example, before that, you know, was doing that with Psycho, where you're like, don't tell anyone the ending. The ending's like the punchline, and you know that that's a that's a big twist, and you're giving people that visceral kind of feeling, which is what part of what attracted me to this format, only part of, but part of what attracted me to the format, the film. But now, what they're setting up with this deep fake Tom Cruise thing is really interesting because it's like, what's next? When you can clone Tom Cruise and you can clone his voice. <laughs> <laughs> and you can clone his body language. What can't you do when you yeah. think about it? And so, the, the, yeah. what could be seeded, I suppose, as an event within that that makes people take notice and, and, and pay attention is is incredible. And these are happening in very cost-effective ways. Um, but this is also a thing where I am a concern. This is a, a unre- slightly unrelated, but I'm concerned that you know, random twenty-three-year-old on TikTok who understands deepfakes, okay, but probably taught themselves on the internet. Let's be real, because that's where you learn about this. Knows more about how to do that than you know. Like we should do that for reshoots. We should do that for you know. There's a lot of things we should be using these technologies because we can do it better. You know, we can have we have slightly larger budget, so we can do it cleaner than, you know, somebody's doing essentially for free. And I do think and with virtual production, of course, uh, everything that has to do with that, that's a very similar problem that that the, that the amateurs, so to speak, and I hate to use that word, but the, but the people who are operating, you know, in an ecosystem outside the traditional industry are so much further ahead because they are uh, humble about going out to learn. It's authenticity as well is the interesting thing. So exactly what you're talking about there, Katzenberg was doing in a, podcast like two years ago we're going to be quibby we're going to professionalize the sector we're going to talk to the younger audience in a way that they they haven't seen with such polish and of course we all know what's happened with quibby now but it's just interesting as we it's really hard to say isn't it we just don't know i suppose it's it's slightly different to what i do now which is much more like conventional film and i i'm not into tiktok i'm perhaps mistakenly so yet uh i i you know we we go out in very much with a pipeline in mind and and the riddle there was a couple of different things i was trying to solve creative and commercial so from a creative sensibility i was really interested in interactive storybooks from when i was a kid for when i was seven eight my imagination like went absolutely, 
exactly. Yeah. So my mind went absolutely wild for that. And it has taken me, you know, many, many years to get to a point where technology has caught up with what I think you can possibly do within that in live action, basically, and, and where that is. And, um, you know, the, the fighting fantasy books, for example, were something that were, you know, sold to us as kids. And now I have the option on those books and we're looking to make them. We've just done a promo, which I'll come on to later. We, we're using the virtual technology that you're talking about, which we've just done the promo. The promo will be released in about a month's time. Um, it's, you know, really, really exciting, the kind of bigger budget of where that can go. But then, um, so so that was anyway, that, that was what interested me creatively. And that's why I loved the possibility of interactive and what could be done. But then commercially, what I got sick of was, and it isn't even... It's not always their fault. Sometimes it's their fault, but it's not always their fault. Distributors beating the hell out of producers, either on what they can give them or when they do, when a producer does have a commercial success, not paying them for different reasons, all sorts of, all sorts of different reasons. Um, and <clears throat> I just got sick of playing with the rig deck. I, I was just like, I can't do this anymore. I can't, I can't responsibly look in my investors' eyes and tell them, you know, on some projects I can, but on a lot of them, now I can't tell you you're going to get your money back on this because even if we win, we lose. You know, yeah. it's 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 just it's, it's there is no. So what attracted me about the gaming market was that there was a degree of transparency to it, which is just much easier. Which is you get ten pound in, they they PlayStation takes three pound, you get seven pound. There you go. You know, that's it. The the and and that to me was. You know, that was an amazing simplicity I'd never seen before in distribution, even having been on the inside of distribution in a very deep way in film, which is where I tried to burrow myself into to get to, to have a better understanding of it. Mm. That so so as a commercial law and an artistic law, that's how I brought myself to to interactive. I realize we're already almost running out of time. So I'll, you, you mentioned <laughs> VP. What are you working with in the, or what are what are your thoughts around around virtual production now? So we've just made a virtual production of Death Trap Dungeon, which is, you know, the best book to me in the fighting fantasy franchise of 59 books or so, which has sold 23 million copies by, you know, the kind of king of the gaming industry, I suppose, in the UK, Ian Livingstone. Um, and he was good enough to give me his, like, you know, his dual property. Um, and so we made a promo of that to see how... Goodgate can then make that into a much bigger experience, more muscly experience. And to use the virtual production of, I'm always looking at ways to make things more efficient. And as soon as I saw virtual production, I thought, okay, maybe we can make something, you know, with proper scale where you can see uh, the vistas of Gladiator, but without the $200 million price tag on there. Yeah. And, you know, that that's really what I was looking for was to be able to, to give that to an audience and that just hasn't been done in live action, uh, interactive entertainment that hasn't been done yet. And, um, the challenge of that always intrigues me, but it was more than that. I just wanted to bring the books to life really. Yeah. And that just seemed like a good way to do it. And I was supported by a regional initiative called cluster who put, you know, a significant amount of money behind the test, which has enabled me to, um, to make what we've got. And we will find out how it lands in the marketplace in about a month's time when it gets released. I should mention here that I've heard a couple of stories of very big, very big Hollywood films where they've where they had used virtual production um, effects as a sort of previsualization 
and then those who are intended to be replaced by quote unquote real VFX after. And once the director sees the final product, they're like, no, let's just go back to what that guy did in a day or a week. And this is, you know, in the short term, bad news if you're working in, in the post side of things. But actually, this I mean, there will be work for everybody, so I'm, I'm not concerned. Uh, it's just that the, the order of things will, will change a little bit. And when you suddenly say, okay, the thing that used to take six weeks of a lot of professionals working together is now going to be more like three people for one week, for instance. Um, that's a complete game changer for what we can do, you know. For instance, as a Welsh filmmaker, you can make a big genre film. That's within reach. Uh, oh, I'm looking at the time. Questions. And then very briefly, what, did you find that it was a high threshold to start working with virtual production? Like, or is it like on a very simple level? You can go on YouTube for like two days and start playing around with it. But to actually get it done, like, how difficult was that? Pretty difficult. It looks you you need a technical team surrounding you who know what they're doing with a significant amount of planning is what I have yeah. learned. Um, and we have learned a, a massive amount about that. And there are roles, the, you know, one of the super exciting things from a crew point of view is there are roles I can see that have not yet been invented that are essential. And there are going to be very clever people who migrate into a hybrid space, which is almost like a linguistic translator between the physical and unreal world. And those professionalizing that intermediary bit with the pieces of the puzzle that need to be in there. Some people are kind of doing it, but to be able to roll out what you're talking to a mass market, there is a, there is a creative friction at the moment between the technical and the physical. There are traditional physical, um, you know, DOPs and production designers and all those people who make a film. And then there is the people in the virtual landscape, you know, in the Unreal Engine and the people who work with the tracking technology and all of those elements who know what they know and respectively, they can both do their jobs, but there needs there needs to be not only a education of the physical traditional physical sector to migrate into that sector, um, but I think there needs to be someone in the middle, like a translator, because they're, they're mm -hmm. it's it's, like it's complicated. I found it complicated. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, like anyone who's done anything like transmedia also knows that you can sit in meetings <clears throat> and agree on everything, and then you find out yeah. three months later that everybody thought the words don't even they don't even think the words mean the same thing. So it is very hard. Okay, very uh, briefly, we are at a cost of an enormous shift for filmmakers in smaller countries or smaller language areas can work to a global audience. Uh, how, uh, what do we need next? Like we're so close to it being completely irrelevant where you live, uh, but I, I realize you have chosen not to be live in London or LA. So, so what, do, what would you need next? It's what I'm doing really. I had to look at something that was going to create me a sustainable growing business. Over the last year I've employed for, you know, we got, we're going to got four full-time staff coming on. I've never been able to do that as a linear filmmaker. You know, as a linear film producer, I feel I've employed hundreds, if not that, well, thousands of people in my career, definitely. Um, but I'm on a fixed basis where these people are getting salaried. This has come from being able to identify a convergence of the speciality I bring and the level of filmmaking that I take as part of the course as, my, as a producer with interactive film, which as yet, and we are seeking to elevate to the same status as the linear films that I love making. And with that, I will bring with me the directing talent, the on-screen talent, and all the contacts that I have in my book and all the experience I have in my book of developing stories and, you know, that hopefully connect with people. Our first linear, non-linear release, The Complex, um, 
It was written by one of the writers of The Handmaid's Tale. It was the most successful release the distributor had ever had in the interactive genre we, um, in the first week. Um, so we've kind of come in with a stamp. We've got another three films under our belt during lockdown. Um, we're going to production again this month. We'll be in production again in May. We'll be in production in July, in August. And I've got another four mapped out after that, which part finance. I've never had that momentum before as a, as a company. And during the pandemic as well. <clears throat> All right, we're going to have to end. So I'll just ask you one final question. Mm. Uh, what is the most important thing for a producer today to think about uh, or change or learn to be prepared for the film landscape five years from now? I would be as sensitive as possible to where money is actually being made in and trying to align that if you can with your creative sensibilities. And that's perhaps really passionate. It's just what I do there. Like, look, I genuinely love interactive books and filmmaking. I could see an alignment between, hang on a minute, these things are making money. I can think do it better than them and it'll satisfy my heart creatively and I'll make money out of it. Us. So, you know, but there's there's so the much going on. What is cinema? It's fantastic. Yeah. Um, this is, there's just so much going on out there. <laughs> you know, it's an exciting yeah. time to be. You know, it genuinely is. Uh, thank you so much. I clearly could speak to you for another hour about this, but we're going to have to end here. Thank you so much, uh, John Giwan, for taking uh, this time to join us today uh, in, in virtual Berlin. Thank you to the FM team. I wish I was there. <laughs> and thank you, of course, to Göteborg Film Festival and our main partner, Filmivest, for, for supporting the Nostradamus Report, which you should all download. Uh, you can find the link in any number of places, including the Göteborg Film Festival website. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks. Take care. And thank you for listening to Industry Insights, the EFM podcast. You can download the Nostradamus report free of charge at gutenbergfilmfestival.se slash Nostradamus. That's a mouthful. So there will be a link in the show notes for you to click. That's all from me today. For the next few full-length episodes of Industry Insights, I'll be handing you over to my esteemed co-host Nadia Denton. Next time, she'll be talking to guests about the documentary series Philly DA in the context of the current docuseries boom. You don't want to miss that, so hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this right now, or look us up at www.efm hyphen berlinale.de that's www.efm hyphen berlinale.de Industry Insights is a podcast from the European Film Market in cooperation with Goethe Institute. Talk to you soon. Industry Insights